0: Since 2017, Metro mayors have been elected in nine English city regions, including Greater Manchester, West Yorkshire and the West Midlands. The mayors exercise powers over transport, skills, housing, economic development and more. The government now wants to strengthen Metro mayors and to create more mayors elsewhere in the country. In a new report, the Institute for Government shows that Metro mayors have had a positive impact, but that they're unable to deliver on their full potential. Mayors are well-placed to develop targeted solutions to local problems.
1: We know our region, we know what our challenges are, and we know how to solve them. So I think and um, that disconnect between our region and Whitehall and Westminster, making decisions on buses, for example, in Westminster, they don't know how they impact on the lives of the people in West Yorkshire.
0: Mayors and the combined authorities they lead are often more flexible and joined up than Whitehall.
2: We genuinely believe that we can take decisions and make decisions here that are more pertinent to people's lives who live here, Mm. and we can respond much more quickly because we are nimble as an organization rather than a monolith of government deciding those things for us. Mayors have a high profile
0: they can use to champion the interests of their regions.
2: Single point of contact, someone who can actually text a government minister which local authority leaders rarely can. Someone who can uh, answer that Kissinger question. If I want to come to the northeast, who do I pick up the phone to? That's the mayoral advantage. But mayors don't yet have
0: the powers to match their ambitions.
2: You almost become responsible for things that you're not responsible for, if that makes sense. You know, if anything goes wrong in Greater Manchester now, people will hit my Twitter timeline and blame me for, for it.
0: The funding model also limits mayors' room for manoeuvre, tying them to delivery of central government priorities. And the really mature model is to actually say, no, government ministers, civil servants are not going to do that. We're going to hand over the, uh, a single pot, we call it, of cash to the CA then to decide what we do. We set out 26 recommendations for reform. Please read our report to find out more. Please do read our report. (laughs) Um, Hello, good morning. Uh, My name is Akash Pound, and I'm really delighted to welcome you all, um, those of you in the room, and hopefully our large online audience too, to today's Institute for Government event on devolution, levelling up, and local leadership, which we're very pleased to be um, holding in partnership with Policy Manchester, which is the University of Manchester's sector-leading policy engagement unit. And we'll hear a bit more about the university's involvement in a few minutes. Um, Today, we're very pleased to be joined by um, Andy Burnham, who's been, as I'm sure certainly everyone in the room and probably most people watching will be well aware, has been mayor of Greater Manchester for a little over five years now in that role and he leads the Greater Manchester Combined Authority formed of the leaders of 10 um, local councils in the Greater Manchester region, those 10, for anyone (laughs) particularly interested, and uh, the mayor working through the combined authority, as we've just heard in our video, exercise a set of functions, um, including in particular uh, transport skills and employment, policing, health, in fact Greater Manchester has the most advanced devolution deal um, possibly with the exception of London of any um, English region. And it's now in the process of negotiating or about to start negotiating um, further powers from uh, to be devolved from Whitehall as part of a, a trailblazer devolution deal which the government announced um, in February. Um, so we'll definitely, I hope, be discussing what's on the table in those negotiations and the government's wider Leveling up strategy and more. Um, very also, uh, also very keen to, to discuss some of the ideas in our um, in our new report that's already been referred to. Um, certainly, we're going to have time for questions from the audience. So people in the room, there'll be a, a roving mic in due course. So, so start to um, formulate your questions. And anyone watching online can propose questions on screen um, and then I will be fed those um, through this clever tablet and we'll put them to the mayor um, on your behalf. Um, So as indicated by the video you've just seen, um, this is the latest in a series of events we've been very pleased to hold with mayors across England. And um, well, Andy, as as we've just seen, did take part in, in one previous event with us, that was I think in February or March or so of last year, so during lockdown and therefore online only. And um, it's great pleasure to be able to have this conversation this time in person um, here in beautiful Manchester Art Gallery in the city centre. So Andy, many thanks for taking thanks, part. Um, great, so before we get into the heart of the conversation uh, between the two of us, I'm delighted now to introduce uh, Professor. Richard Jones, who's Vice President, uh, Regional Innovation and Civic Engagement at the University of Manchester, um, and also Independent Science Advisor to Innovation Greater Manchester, um, which is a public-private partnership, working, I think, closely with the mayor and his team um, on things including the proposed new Innovation Accelerator. So many thanks to you for your support of this event, Richard.
1: Well, thanks very much and welcome on behalf of the University of Manchester. I mean, my job title indicates how important uh, civic engagement is for the university, uh, both work in policy, so policy at Manchester extensively works both with uh, the national government but also with the combined authority on important policy issues. But increasingly also uh, our work in innovation and skills in driving the Greater Manchester economy. So the IGM report talks about the convening power of the mayor. And one example of that is the fact that we have all five Greater Manchester Universities now come together in a civic university agreement under the sponsorship of the mayor. To commit to joint actions to support the citizens of the city and its economy and we're seeing increasing collaboration with our nine fe colleges and i think that just indicates the way we can move towards a truly joined up skill system which i think is pretty hard to do from whitehall in fact it's technically impossible from whitehall I think one area that's that's really important, I've been very uh, interested in, is the area of economic growth, how how the combined authority can support the economic growth of the city. Greater Manchester, uh, although it's successful in many ways, still in terms of productivity, it's uh, underperformed compared to comparable-sized European cities. A big part of uh, uh, productivity is research and development. And uh, like other productivity-enhancing investments, state uh, spending on R&D is focused on those places that are already the most prosperous. So pretty much half of it goes to uh, to, to, to London, Oxford, and Cambridge, and the, the greater southeast. So I've been really pleased. Greater Manchester was really far-sighted in setting up uh, Innovation Greater Manchester as an agency to, to look at R&D. Uh, I'm pleased that that this issue is recognized in the leveling up white paper as as, uh, as mission two, increasing R&D spending outside the greater southeast in a way that that creates more business R&D and then converts that into... uh, Higher productivity, economic uh, growth, better jobs and prospects for the people of Greater Manchester. So I was very pleased. Innovation Greater Manchester is one of the three areas that's been selected for the pilot innovation accelerators. That's very welcome, but it's a uh, hundred million for two years, only three cities. It needs much longer commitment. Uh, should be applied in more cities, and uh, uh, you know we have to judge that. That 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 it, that hundred million is very welcome. But in the context of a 20 billion uh, uh, overall government r d spending it, it, it still uh, needs to go a, a bit further needs, so, so i think that needs to be part of a deepening devolution deal so uh, the mayor the, uh, the other elected leaders have been you know they really get this they've been really supportive of our efforts in in, in trying to promote innovation greater manchester we just need to get to make sure that central government and its agencies understand the importance of that aspect too. But anyway, it's enough from me, it's the mayor you want to hear from, so over to you. Thanks, Richard.
0: Great, yeah, thank you, thank you, Richard. Um, And thanks again to Policy Manchester for their support. Okay, so Andy, um, yeah, yeah, let's uh, let's get into it, shall we? Um, I'd like to start by talking about levelling up and, and the context here in Greater Manchester, will absolutely move on shortly to further powers that might be devolved, the innovation um, accelerator as, as one of the issues on the table. Um, but in terms of the, the position of Greater Manchester, if you don't mind, I'll just call up a slide that um, you'll find actually in, in our report, which just illustrates the economic and, and I suppose social performance of the various regions where metro mayors now exist compared to the UK average. Greater Manchester is the, it might be a bit hard to to make out for some people, but it's the uh, dark pink one, which basically without getting into all the details uh, now, the story is Greater Manchester is, like most of these northern city and midland city regions, below the UK average in terms of productivity, skills, um, household income, social mobility, and some other things. That's, that's not a great revelation, um, but it's useful context. And my, my question to you just to start off is, wh- what do you think are the, the key indicators that will tell us over the course of the next five, ten, or more years, whether leveling up is, is, is actually happening?
2: Well, thanks very much, Akash, just to say at the start, thanks to the Institute for Government for bringing this event here. Um, your support, particularly coming from an organisation like yours, for what we're trying to do is, uh, is much appreciated, actually. And um, I think there is a story at building here in terms of what devolution, regional devolution, can add to UK PLC. To answer your question, um, it's tempting to dive into uh, economic indicators, but I, I, I will not do that just because I think something, there's something more important before that, if you like, mm which is um, the health of the population, um, the level of aspiration amongst our, amongst our young people. I think those are kind of important before you then get to the sort of the things that you... If, you, if those things aren't right, then you're not going to achieve the employment rate that you want or um, the, the level of social mobility that you, 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 you seek. So I, I would uh, very much want to look at School readiness, um, in terms of young people, uh, four-year-olds arriving at primary school, levels of school readiness, I think, are massive, in terms of uh, fundamentals for um, for a city region like ours, or healthy life expectancy. I think that again is something that is uh, that is fundamentally important. We do a, a get Richard uh, mentioned the relationship the university, all of the universities have with us. Um, the University of Manchester has recently. Um, helped us develop a Be Well survey, which is a comprehensive survey of our young people and Councillor Eamon O'Brien is here from Bury, who's led on on the development of that as our lead for children and and young people. That is tracking young people's level of hope and optimism for the future. And again, that comes before the social mobility Mm -hmm. indicator, I would say, being in the the right place. to make it real I just wanted to give you one thing that is um, uh, something we're very proud of it hasn't actually been published yet um, but it hopefully will be soon I think it's the peer review process that uh, universities rightly rightly go through but there's been a, uh, a piece of work sponsored by the Health Foundation on um, five years of health devolution in greater Manchester and there's been a debate about that, to what extent has it done anything, and I think there are some skeptics about it. Actually, if I could just read to you the non-peer-reviewed findings, (laughs) so I'm sure sure the academics in the room would want me to to say that. Um, It it says, um, between 2016 and 2019, life expectancy of Greater Manchester was 0.196 years, higher than expected in the first two years, life expectancy of Greater Manchester was protected from the decline observed in comparable uh, areas. Um, and it, the overall conclusion is Greater Manchester had better population health than expected following devolution. The benefits of devolution were most apparent in the most deprived and poorer health areas, suggesting a narrowing of inequality. So, that matters more that I would say than, than anything, because hmm. I, you know, if you look at if you look at studies on productivity uh, in, in Greater Manchester, actually, if you look at the um, independent prosperity review that we commissioned uh, under Professor Diana Coyle, that said the health of our population is a very big drag on our productivity. And it's not just physical health, of course, people will f- instantly think of physical health. I think more likely mental health, um, self-esteem, you know, those kind of issues are what, what hold people back from uh, contributing as much as they can at at, at work. So that's why I would go there first, to those type of indicators, because if they're not in the right place, those won't be in the right place. But devolution is actually starting to show that it can make, it can move some of those really fundamental um, uh, indicators uh, that will be critical to our success or otherwise.
0: Yeah, very interesting, thanks. And I mean, those health and social care uh, powers that, that Greater Manchester holds um, are, I don't think, devolved in the same way to any of the other other regions. And indeed, as I already mentioned, there's a few other areas where you're really in the forefront here in Greater Manchester. Yeah. Um, and yet we are now talking about even more powers for Greater Manchester. So wh- where do you see the, the big gaps as lying? Um, in terms of the current devolution settlement, you know, we're, we're basically, um, you know, starting as, as mentioned, these trailblazer deal yeah. negotiations, what's really the priorities for you in terms of the powers you need to start to improve those things you've been talking about?
2: Yeah, just if I could say something on health, just to, to, to add to what I've just yeah. said before. When it was first put forward, the health devolution deal in Greater Manchester, a lot of emphasis was placed on integrating health and social care, that that is what it would do. And to be honest, it has, you know, that, that agenda has moved on hugely and we're well well positioned now for the integrated care systems coming. But the big change I would say in, in, is between the relationship with health, with other areas of public policy that it hasn't traditionally been as close to as it should be. Mm. So housing would be absolutely up there, but so would um, the whole question of, of school readiness. Um, I'll give you an example. The work we did on that led to us creating a digital, um, care record for health visitors, who, prior to our work on school readiness, were using paper-based records. The idea being you create a digital record that then can be seen by other public professionals, so that everyone's got visibility of children who need more support. Mm. Now it sounds a bit internal, but it's critical.
0: Yeah, um, is that joining up between different services? Massively so. Is easier to do. At the so we were having level. discussions
2: in a room, the combined authority, saying, well, we're going to need to get everyone. Focusing on the kids who were not on a pathway to be school ready, but we realized quickly we couldn't do that because health visitors had a paper-based record Mm. And I had to get permission from Jeremy Hunt as the then Secretary of State to allow the paper-based System for health visitors to be digitized and it's been rolled out aiming in a number of our boroughs now, hasn't it? It's it's being introduced to give 360 visibility if you like for the public professionals working with children of the kids who need So that's just one example. Another would be homelessness, where I persuaded the health service to come in as a partner on our uh, initiatives to to tackle rough sleeping. And that's had a a, massive, massive benefit, actually, Uh, and as it has actually improved health of the people whose health was in the most critical state in our city region, i.e. rough sleepers. You know, Any period of rough sleeping is catastrophic for physical health and mental health. I remember having a conversation with the health service kind of early in the role saying, well, they said, well, why should we contribute? We we were happy to do obesity or smoking. And I said, well, you've got a public health crisis in the street outside you're walking past it. Um, You know, the health service needs to, you can't just say that's for housing, it isn't. Homelessness is predominantly a health issue. Mm. And I think devolution here has kind of changed the mindset about how people view some of those issues, not the Whitehall silo of homelessness lives in D-look uh, school readiness lives in de- Do you know what I mean? It starts yeah, yeah, to absolutely. say these are all of our issues and mm. we all have, and that's a really, really important process. What's missing, sorry to answer your question.
0: But so it's very much connected to what you were talking about. It is yeah, because yeah, the, the
2: more gaps? you join the dots, the more this thing makes sense mm. and the greater the power it has. But at the moment, if I look at the situation, you know, if I look at where Grace Manchester is, it's like a I'd say a two-thirds finished jigsaw or something or a half-finished jigsaw. And There's powers in certain bits, of, but there's big chunks of it missing. Skills is an obvious one. I think housing is is is, is another incomplete section. Mm. Transport is largely filled in, but not completely uh, filled in. But the argument I would make is, this is what we can do that Whitehall can't. We can join the dots. Steve Rotherham was saying this in your, in your mm-hmm. video. We can say... This is how it makes sense in a place-based context where all of these things come come together. It's great to have Elise with us, a former leader of Stockport uh, Council, leader of the Labour Group. Stockport is a great example of that because it's happening in Stockport at the moment through the Mayoral Development Corporation. There is a joining of the dots between housing, transport, regeneration, green space, livability in its broadest sense. And that just can't be done um, from Whitehall. So, I think what I would say is, as part of this discussion we're about to go into, it's why we strongly welcome the report that the Institute for Government has published. It, it's our ability to, 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 to join the dots at a place-based level um, that means we are adding something to UK PLC. And um, the more powers you give us, the more we can do that, the, the success story will get stronger.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that, yeah, thanks for those comments about our report. Um, so, I mean, as I, was, I was actually going to just, just quote one line from our report, one of the recommendations about the next phase of devolution, which I think chimes with what you were saying. I mean, specifically what we say is the next phase of devolution to Greater Manchester and, and elsewhere should seek to fill in the gaps of the yeah. existing settlement. So it's yeah. completing that, that jigsaw, I, yeah. I, I suppose, as as you've just put it. So. Um, in that light, I mean, what progress has there been then towards actually reaching that, that agreement? I mean, the, the government committed to the Trailblazer deal uh, four months or so ago in, in its white paper. I know you've had local elections in between. There's been some changes of, of council leaders and so on. So where are we up to? You know, are we, are we, are we expecting a deal? Sometime this year, by the autumn, what, what are you what are you looking at? I hope
2: so. I hope we could um, meet that timetable. I think there's been a lot of good work, preparatory work going on, engagement between my team, some of some of them here here today, with officials across across the system. Positive discussions. Um, I think there's been good work in, in your world, if you like, uh, Institute for Government's report, but there was a report from Onward mm. uh, recently, which was the degree of alignment I found really encouraging between what you were both uh, saying, but actually there's also alignment between the combined authorities. Um, Andy Street and I have been open with our uh, other eight colleagues in the in the M10 organization that we're not just doing this alone or what can we get out of it? We are doing it in an open book approach and encouraging our colleagues in the other eight to look at what we're asking for and comment and because we feel we're doing it for the group mm. and, and mayors that will come beyond, uh, beyond us. Um, and there's an alignment as we get ready to move towards the negotiation stage. There is a high degree of alignment, uh, between, uh, West Midlands combined authority and Greater Manchester combined authority. So when you look at that, the alignment in the world of serious think tanks, uh, combined authorities themselves, uh, and I would say not government, not, you know, not not sort of uh, immediately saying, oh no no no, that's it. You know, there's a there's an openness it would seem. I'm reasonably optimistic for these uh, negotiations. On the timeline, uh, I think we expect them to start next month. So I think there'll be a pre pre summer recess phase of, of the discussion at,
0: with min- between you, you and ministers or at official level. What's the actual? Process I
2: don't know for sure at this moment in time, but mm-hmm. I, I hope so. And but I certainly think the uh, official engagement will will. Uh, increase in that in that period um, I mean I would be looking towards the autumn statement as an obvious time to um, to say something about about this I don't think it's complicated what we're asking for on skills I and mean, I could take you through the specifics if, if that helps everybody um, I think we'd be interested to hear some of the specifics like yeah. what are your real priority asks okay mm. so I think I mean obviously everything revolves around transport for all of us and you know I, I will touch on that but I'm not gonna go first there. I'm gonna go to skills first because I think that is our, that's the weakest card in our hand at the moment. Mm. So um, however, it's not all bad because the combined authorities have taken control of the adult education budget. And I think somebody should just do a piece of work looking at what the 10 mayoral combined authorities have done with that. Because I think there's already evidence to show we are making much more of it, uh, than, it than it managed before, when we took, so our budget is 92 million pounds there or thereabouts. Mm. When we took it on in uh, 2019, there were 300 different providers um, involved in the spending of that 92 million pounds. Some, I remember, sticking in my mind, at the University of Southampton, like three people. Well, what, you know, what? It, it, was, it was a budget that Whitehall had never focused on, uh, never sort of taken a strategic approach to mm. it had just grown over the years randomly you know that and it was a, a stone they'd never got round to looking under properly you know and already I think we would say that budget is being used in a much more strategic way around helping people with level one level two qualifications um, and increasingly moving now towards what we would call green conversion or digital conversion so more work related mm. uh, focus for the that budget. Um, and that's yeah, really, really positive. Uh, but where do we go? F- so I think there's already a tra- what the point I'm making is there's already a track record on skills. Um, I think we're all ready to go further. So the ask will be for control of post 19 uh, technical education. Mm. Um, and co control of post 16. Now, the reason why we're not saying control of post 16 is because, you know, if you look at colleges and Richard's absolutely right, we are starting to work more as a system, FE, HE, and the whole the whole system together. It is still the case that there's a national route to HE going on there, and there's you know there's, there's mm. a kind of more national among that same co- cohort of people uh, in the yeah, same people in the 16 to 19 system. Yeah, um, but it's it's about developing a sort of uh, you know a, a co commissioning role there. Um, But then taking much greater control post-19 and by taking much greater control, I'm talking about control of the apprenticeship levy. Mm. And there are many businesses around the city region that are just tearing their hair out about the the failure of the apprenticeship levy system to work, uh, work for them. Um, I'm talking about work related uh, activity from the DWP. We had an element of the work program called Working Well. And again, there's evidence to show that we've uh, made a success. We had double the rate of success at getting people back to work than was achieved under the previous at work program. This was for people longest out of the labor market. Mm-hmm. So it would be about consolidating and simplifying that very fragmented landscape of adult adult skills or post-19 uh, skills. Um, and you know, we're, we're, we're really ready to do that. I've already created a system called GMAX, which is a bit of a workaround, but it's is a sort of enabling tool. So simply, GMAX is what I would, what I did describe in my original manifesto as a UCAS-style system for apprenticeships. So the idea being that it's a single portal for apprenticeships and work-related opportunity in Greater Manchester. At the moment, it's trying to do that without the power. We're just help. We're asking employers to show what they have, so we can. Give young people a line of sight from where they are in school to what is available in the actual GM economy. They can't. They don't know what jobs are available in the city centre. How would they know? And what we're trying to do is give them that line of sight to get that aspiration level up. But then, if you add behind that the real power for us to shape pathways through post-16 education into uh, into HE of various kinds, you know, then we really will be firing on all cylinders. Yeah. And here's a really important point I'll just 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 make, if you don't mind, Akash. The guiding principle for this is not got can't be, we want this power because we want it, you know, for the sake of it. Do you know what I mean? Which sometimes may be the way government perceives the demands that come out of combined authorities. Our approach in this negotiation will be, we want it because, not just we need it, but UK PLC needs it. Uh, Elise will tell you when she did her uh, role as the economy lead for Greater Manchester, she and I would be in various places around the world. And the big question we'd always get asked if we were talking to a potential investor is: can you guarantee the talent? Can you guarantee the skills? And truthfully, we can give we try to give them an answer, and we can give them something of an answer, but we can't give them as good an answer as we'd like to give them, because at the moment we haven't got control of all of those all of those levers. Mm. The minute we can start giving potential investors a better answer to that question that yes, we've got control of that talent pipeline, we can guarantee that you will have that steady supply of, you know, uh, tech talent or whatever it might be, then I think the regions of England will, will be in a much better place to face face up to 21st century um, uh, challenges. Yeah. Great, yeah, and um,
0: just to mention, you said um, you think it would be good if someone looked into the the devolution of adult education budget. That's something I'm hoping the Institute for Government might please do. Sp- spend
2: some time um, investigating. Do you'll find actually. it's a it's a yeah. more impressive success story than people might might realise. Yeah, yeah. And if you add the money together, I think you'd be getting close to. Getting close to a billion pounds, you wouldn't be that far short of it. Mm-hmm. When you look at what the ten are spending together, yeah, yeah, uh, certainly with London included, you, you'd be getting you'd be getting absolutely up to that level. Yeah. We are making a lot more of that money than was than was made before when it was in a, a neglected part of the DFE and no one really bothered about it. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, really interesting. Um, and I mean, in terms of the, you've talked about the skills part of it in particular, but uh, but I know you've 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 mentioned already transport and housing and so on as being areas you're seeking more powers. Is this all about seeking further devolution from central government to Greater Manchester? Or as part of these negotiations, are you thinking about, I know this is a more sensitive issue, but the the balance of power between yourself as mayor and the local authorities within the region. For example, when it comes to say housing and planning. Um, Is any change in in the internal constitution, I suppose, of GMCA
2: um, also on the cards? I think the government has got to be careful about mandating that because, to be honest, the the principle follows with devolution that the lower you take a decision, the better it's likely to be. So it can't necessarily therefore make sense that taking powers up off local authorities will, will, will make public administration better. You've got to follow the logic. Mm. Um, and actually here, because it's by consent with the 10, I think it leads to better decision-making as well. You know, I, I think personally, I'm biased obviously, but our model is, is superior to the, to, the, um, to the London model, the GLA, because the GLA is a kind of layer without a direct connection to the, what is it? The 30, 32 boroughs, two boroughs yeah. of, of mm. London. Um, our model is the GMCA is the 10, as it is for other mayoral combined authorities. And because of that, okay, you've got a challenge then of agreeing together. So every decision has to get the 10 and myself and GMP and everyone else behind it, which is hard. But once you've got that, the whole thing can move as one and and as a united front on an issue. And and that's how we made such a difference on homelessness for Mm -hmm. precisely that reason. I think if you move to a situation where there's a sense that the GMCA, or that I am trying to dictate to the local authorities, I think you will see a sort of a, a, a new tension emerges of top-down decision making, and I think I think you, I wouldn't l- jump there. There are areas where you can sensibly coordinate. So, give you an example: uh, taxis, taxi licensing across GM. We're moving towards a system of minimum licensing standards, which is agreed, a same standard being applied by all ten, mm. and that is a you know a degree of Sensible coordination, uh, and it's relevant actually to a, um, a report that we published yesterday on child sexual exploitation in Oldham, where taxi licensing was a real weakness in the arrangements. And now, our 10 through the minimum licensing standards are doing more than what is required in national uh, policy, i.e., six month um, uh, criminal records checks. Uh, so, that is a good example of how you know working voluntarily we can make make a good change the government are pressing us to um, have a more kind of top-down approach to the management of roads and road space and highways there's a definitely a role for greater coordination there but I I I would just I, I would I wouldn't say that's the area to sort of really drive the next phase of discussion because you know that would be about taking up rather than down and it almost is Counterintuitive when it comes to a conversation about devolution. Yeah, yeah. The issue you can get into is more accountability.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, I definitely wanna come on to that in a minute. Before, before we do though, um, just wondered if there was, were any updates um, you might be able to share about the, the innovation accelerator specifically, which um, Professor Jones was talking about a few moments ago. Is that part of the trailblazer negotiations? Is that something separate? It was sort of presented separately in the white paper
2: Richard probably knows more, if I'm, if I'm honest. Ah. Um, in the, you know, obviously, we've got what we would call a first step, which is the £25 million, uh, pounds, um, which is very, very welcome. But I think we, we see this as, and this is for discussion in the, um, in, in the talks, it's a, we've got to be getting t- towards a situation where there is a much greater level of R&D spend in the English regions, and it's a sort of pathway to that, The accelerator, as its name suggests, is kind of taking us a big jump down the path, but it's got to be part of a a journey that continues to see money um, not necessarily taken out of the golden triangle, but a kind of rebalancing effect uh, between parts of the country where there is a genuine world-class strength in research. And we would say, well, we wouldn't say we have got it here in in Greater Manchester in terms of uh, materials and advanced manufacturing. Mm. Um, I see Ben Bridgewater at the back of the room from Health Innovation, Manchester. Uh, We would say we've got it in life sciences as well. I I go back to when I was a minister, a health minister, when we were creating the first academic health research centres. It was a a recommendation, I think, of David Sainsbury at the time to Gordon Brown as as Prime Minister. And there were to be five created around the country. And I was presented with the list of five uh, as a junior health minister. Um, Oxford, Cambridge and three in London. And I remember saying, I'm not signing that off. And um, what protracted that going into all the details was a lengthy standoff um, with the R&D people in the Department of Health. Um, but eventually they offered a sixth, um, which became the Manchester um, HRC, which was I think set up be about 2008, Ben, nine? I can't remember, eventually it did, it did come through. But it, that's, that's the hold on R&D that this accelerator has got to break. And you need the same approach to that. You know, it's not just twenty five million pounds, does it? Richard, you you add if I've if I've missed something that you would want to get over?
1: No, I mean the scale of it has to be much bigger than yep.
2: And I think we would, I mean, the university's already showing this, a a lot of people make this point, but it is worth making again. I think when you get it here, that money, you'd have a greater emphasis on the D, rather than the R, I think, Um, and that's very much the style of the University of Manchester and the other universities here, Mm. uh, that then would have more impact on the real economy, yeah, I it's think. Yeah, the
0: application of it, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'm a bit conscious of um,
0: the time, and we have, I'm sure, lots of people sure. wanting to ask questions. So just a couple more things I wanted to, to, yeah. to ask you myself, and then then we'll bring in the audience. So um, partly just because we've got a very nice uh, slide prepared by my, my colleague Alex at the back. Um, but right. I know that part of the negotiations um, and, well, wider reforms of... of, of um, devolution in, in various places actually is that you're looking for simplification of funding yeah so um, we talk about it a lot in our in our report yeah. and, and so does onward in the other paper um, as it stands um, GMCA and the other combined authorities are quite dependent on lots of different grants from the center often for kind of quite specific mm. functions um, you do have some revenue raising capacity of your own but Um, not a huge amount. I know you're looking to reform that model. And we've made some recommendations, but what's your ideal um, model for for how, setting aside whether you ultimately get more money, which everyone would like to have, but how would you actually see the the funding model as working better to to enable you to achieve what you wanna achieve?
2: Well, first, I think you've got to identify the problem you're trying to solve. And the problem here is the bidding culture got to break the bidding culture. Devolution won't move to the next phase, unless we do that. This idea of making everybody go on bended knee to whichever Whitehall department, oh, don't speak out of turn because you might not get, I mean, that roughly is how it it is. I mean, it's just wrong on every level, actually. Um, And it's wasteful of people's energy, of people's time the local authorities in the room will tell you that they just don't have the capacity to do all this stuff you know they haven't got it you know if you go back to the mid 2000s maybe there were teams in local authorities who could do this but, but what does it what does it add but more than that what does it imply i'll tell you what it implies because i've been there and i've heard it in whitehall circles it's a lack of trust in bodies at our level and and councils basically and there's just no grounds for it. I would fairly confidently uh, make the statement that central government wastes more money than local government from what I've seen. And I've been in both now for a big chunk of time. In fact, I'm certain about saying that. Um, and, and they waste more money because they're too far away. Uh, again, as Steve was saying, you know, if you're closer to something and you kind of have a feel for it, you're going to just understand more what will be good spending and what would be bad uh, spending. You've got to break that bidding culture. Otherwise, it's not just the speed with which you can work. It's that control thing. It's the time it it builds in, but it's worse than that. It's this thing that we've got you and you're gonna have to come to us and please, can I have some? I mean, look at the bus services improvement funding. Yeah, We got a good settlement. Thank you to the government for that. But I can't justify that Sheffield got nothing. I mean, how this idea, and then it also brings in the politics of it, doesn't it? you know, one area can get something and another area can't. I mean, that, that isn't good government. And I think we're in danger of this, at this moment in time, without veering too much into politics, I think we're in danger in this country. I didn't operate as a minister like that. I don't think, as far as I could tell, largely the coalition didn't operate like that, nor Tory governments of the past. I think we're in danger at the moment of moving to a position where public money and the allocation of it is being used as a political tool and that, that isn't how Britain has been traditionally governed. We've governed for everywhere and everybody. And I think now there's a risk of governing for highly partisan reasons. They can have some, they can't. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that's, I really don't think that's, that's healthy at all. Uh, there needs to be therefore more trans, this reform that we're talking about is about, well it's about simplicity, it's about um, clarity, the public visibility of the funding, and then there can be a, a further thing of um, of accountability. So what Andy Street was saying in the video, which which I agree with, is the consolidation for us of a single Dell budget. Um, I, I, now this is only an idea, and it's not necessarily something that you know we've gone firm on, and it's something that you know I still would need to talk through with my, with the leaders. But I think there is a case for Greater Manchester having a Dell budget allocated in the same way that Scotland and Wales uh, has one. Mm. And then- um, And just
0: to be clear for, yeah, that, that departmental expenditure limit, that's, yep. the, that's the acronym. So
2: basically you'd have- Well, basically what you saw on the a, screen- A block uh,
0: grant in the way that- the yeah, yes. Evolved
2: administrations in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, do something Correct. closer to that model. Correct, a- absolutely. Uh, because that would give the local leaders here more, inf- it would get rid of the bidding culture, number one, and it would give local leaders here more ability to influence, Mm. public spending which they should have that ability you know we've got to get back to a kind of vision of things where councils are you know everyone will come and talk about the GMCA as the as the entity that Whitehall can see the GMCA and it it struggles to see beyond that doesn't it but actually you've got to get back to a, a view of things of empowering councils to make change in their areas so this isn't about empowering the GMCA this is about empowering councils and if you put them closer to where the decisions about that significant public spending is, is made that in my view empowers them to then uh, get much better results for, for public, public funding. It mm-hmm. would be clearer the, the, the public they would be able to see how much was given and what, what we said we were going to achieve for it and then you would have the stronger accountability and you know the public accounts committee or whatever uh, mechanisms required. No fear about that at all, none at all. Um, and I just think that would be a sensible reform t- to move to now. It would be the n- it would be the next phase of devolution, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would be. Yeah. Simpler, I mean, it would be, clearer.
0: Yeah. It would be. A, it would be a big step from
2: where we are now. But I can absolutely see why you're you're pushing for it. I, I don't mean- think so because that money's been allocated anyway. Mm. But it's just being allocated. So it's not like we're asking for more money. Mm. It's just saying. Take away all the separate strings and the, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what's just happened to us recently. The city region sustainable transport uh, system funding, they call it cross funding in in government. Yeah. Again, I'm not making political points here. Thank you to the government for a very fair settlement for Greater Manchester, just over a billion, a billion pounds. I think it reflects the scale of our ambition for transport in the city region. And the fact we've got strong plans, but nevertheless, uh, let me give credit where it's due, that was a a good settlement. However, however, we have just gone a bit backwards, unfortunately, from where we were with its predecessor called Transforming Cities, where we did get the ability to allocate that quite, quite freely. Uh, And we prioritized cycling and walking uh, in that 2017 to 2021 period. Mm. Um, And we are on, you've probably seen it uh, being built, you know, there's a lot of uh, work going on there. And that was a very light touch process. In the crust uh, environment, we've had number ten commenting on the location of bus stops in Bury and uh, uh, all kinds of um, hmm. uh, uh, comment on, on on our plans. And that is a backward step, I, I, I would say. Um, hmm. And we need to get you know back to a position. But you know, this city region took Metrolink to the Trafford Centre recently, um, on budget and I think about nine months ahead of time. You know, we built we built a tram system here without much help really from the centre, mm. um, some but not as much as you would expect. So there's a capability here, yeah. and this issue of trust has got to be addressed. And the Institute for Government I think could, could help us here. You know, as I say, public servants working local authorities, I think have it far. T- they are to be trusted more in many ways because they have it tougher. They are, you know, they are really having to you know, to work harder. Often at national level, you know, the same strictures are not applying to, you know, there's a, there's a, the pressure is off at that level where there's a pressure is definitely on. As I've seen, you know, I've seen the difference between these two two worlds. Mm. So the tr- the lack of trust is just not justified. It really isn't justified. It kind of goes back to the 80s, doesn't it? And Looney left or all that stuff where Whitehall just decided that councils just needed to be almost bypassed or yeah. but it's But that is really damaging, I would say, to the, to the governance of Britain, this kind of loss of agency yeah. at the very local level in terms of what the local authority can do. Yeah. I mean, to be
0: fair on a party political point, I don't think the post-97 government is seen in local government
2: as a great era of decentralization. Definitely either, not, which maybe no I know for sure, I, yeah. I agree with you, I, the <laughs> government I was in carried on that same mentality, yeah, it was yeah. v- two, even more top down actually. Yeah,
0: okay, and I might ask in a minute actually about labour policy, but I'm very keen to bring in some of the questions we've mm-hmm. had, um, so I'll come to people in the room shortly. Um, first of all, there's a few uh, from the online audience, thanks for those. And if it's okay, I'll maybe throw three at you at, at once yep. so we can cover more territory if possible. So, okay, so here's some interesting related ones. Um, Julia Goldsworthy, who I'm sure you I do. you know well. Hi, um, uh, yeah, so, well, formerly worked in, in, in Parliament and for the government and West Midlands combined authority, in fact, asks, how can central government best equip itself to support leveling up? Does the cabinet committee set up the mission-led approach, the reporting regime, etc., represent reasonable progress. Um, so if you have views on that, that would be very helpful. Um, here's a different question, but also about reform of the center uh, from someone anonymous who asks, Andy, what are your thoughts on replacing the House of Lords with a chamber of Metro mayors and local councillors? Potentially located somewhere outside of London, (laughs) um, but a very different kind of constitutional setup. I'm sure Lord O'Brien
2: would fancy that. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: And then we've also had a question, which um, again from someone else, anonymous, well, it could be the same person, I don't know. Um, As the mayoral model matures, what relationship would it have with government? And I wanted to ask you about this anyway, because it's something we talk about Mm. in our paper um, whether there should be a more Uh, formal institutionalised set of structures and principles as well for facilitating cooperation and and resolving disputes when they arise and so on between central government and individual mayoralties and maybe the M10 group as a whole. So I'll throw those all at you if I may.
2: Yeah, they're they're great questions and I endorse uh, the recommendations that you've, you've made on this I would say as a first step uh, to reforming the centre. Um, we made multiple calls for being part of COBRA during the pandemic mm. and um, that was not granted. Um, I, I think the pandemic could be a real case study in how if they'd worked more through um, combined authorities and local authorities, we would have had a more effective, uh, effective uh, response uh, and the lack of structures. I got invited once to um, the UK committee that Michael Gove chairs because you might remember Scotland imposed a travel ban uh, on us. So it might not just be Westminster government that you have to bring in, you have to, you know, because obviously other governments can have an impact on uh, cities like ours. Mm-hmm. I think there does have to be a forum for dialogue, structured dialogue, uh, definitely between the combined authorities and, and Whitehall, but also perhaps with the Welsh Government and the Scottish Government uh, as well. Um, the lack of that obviously led to us, ha- me, having to be out here in the city center i think you had a photo of it uh making the case around tier three and proper support for people um who were going to be affected by by tier three i think you know it isn't the case that we just leapt to that to play politics we were trying and trying and trying elise would and eamon will back me up on this to get them to listen to us in um in long discussions but the, the lack of a of a formal we were trying to get our voice heard but the lack of a formal uh, resolution uh, mechanism of the kind you're describing, Mm. I think, uh, led to the position that we uh, we, we, we were in. So reform of the center for sure, but I am gonna be tempted to kind of stray into the House of Lords territory because I I think we've got the country we've got in terms of the levels of inequality because of our political system. I believe it's currently hardwired to produce inequality. If you concentrate Political power, as we do, in one postcode, and actually, it's not even in the hands of everybody elected there. It's in the hands of a smaller subset of people, about a hundred or so people who really wield the power in that, that world. You are going to get um, unevenness, to say the least, when it comes to uh, how decisions are are made. They're going to benefit some parts of the country more than others, and that's what we've that's what we've got. Um, so. I've come to the view that we need a complete rewiring of Britain. If you are to achieve levelling up, levelling up will be a short-lived, temporary endeavour. Without it, because we'll just go back to the old ways of doing it. You know, the the Green Book is a product of a system that doesn't actually. It, it's a, it's not just a it's not just a sort of a bias that people have to London and the South East. The Green Book is actually that is the evidence that it's a it's been national policy hasn't it to say we will always give more treasury funding to the areas that can give us the biggest return more quickly that that is the policy of the country pretty much since the 70s and 80s um you know kind of heating up the areas that are already doing well that that, that's what we've been doing and you've got to in my view change that so i think the, the country needs to be rewired so that all places and therefore all people have an equal, um, have equal leverage in in the system. So I have come to the view, Julia may like this, she'll say what kept you, but um, (laughs) I've come to the view of uh, that we need proportional representation for the commons. As as an MP, I think the current first-past-the-post and whip system disempowers MPs. You you, you are often just rubber stamping things in the commons, you don't have leverage for your area, Um, and I think, a PR system would, would provide that mm-hmm. and it would provide other benefits. I, I think the Lords needs to be replaced with a, a Senate of the nations and regions, mm. either indirectly or directly elected, so that all nations and regions have, have an equal voice in our national parliament. That's not a lot to ask, is it? And it's not a lot to ask that all laws are made by somebody who can be removed, i.e. they're elected and therefore can be removed. We don't have that at the moment. So, and then the, th- the, the third leg of that particular stool, so reform of the Commons, and I would also reform the whip system actually, mm. reform of the Lords to the elected Senate, and then maximum devolution out of the Westminster system to combined authorities and local authorities. And that for me would rewire the country, share power around more evenly, create more agency across England yeah. uh, and the UK. And, and actually, would then be a country that is wired to level up as opposed to what we've had all mm-hmm. of our lives, which is the opposite. Okay, great. Um, lots more questions I'm keen to bring
0: in from online, but let's get some questions from inside the room. So, yeah, um,
2: laid at the front. I don't mind running on to quarter to if you've got the time, but, to um, tell it to you, but if we to you. Yeah, if you we
0: can run over a little bit. If you want to, to yeah, I'd yeah. be
2: no yeah, very keen
0: to do that. Thanks. Hi, I'm Tallulah from the CIOB. Um, You talked about skills being a priority of the devolution negotiations, and you're talking about focusing primarily on post-16 and 19, but I just wondered in terms to actually make best use of the apprenticeship levy. How do we filter that down into secondary schools so that we do give value to vocational education? For example, in Wales, they recently brought in a built environment GCSE pathway. We have that in terms of T levels here. But are we missing a whole kind of group of people there? You know, how can we expect to get people to university if they're not even obtaining the correct qualifications in compulsory education? Okay, thanks. Um, thanks for that. We'll take a couple more together. So there's oh, there's one lady here, and then there's two over there. Should we
2: take all four, Andy? And yeah, uh, yeah, s- sure. Don't know if they're going to well, be maybe in twos if that's okay. And then I'll take Certainly. two others because then I'll do justice to all.
0: I'm from Shelter in uh, Manchester. Um, thanks, Andy, for all the help that you've um, done with uh, rough sleepers. You know that's really transformed <coughs> our work as well as the um, lives of lots of people on the street. But one of the things that we're mainly seeing at the moment is issues in the private rented sector, where um, families with children are living in appalling conditions in the private rented sector. So um, you talk about trying to get children school ready, but a lot of these children are actually trying to do GCSEs and they've got rats climbing over their beds at night and black mould on the walls. Um, Other councils, such as Oxford City Council, are bringing in a city-wide licensing, mandatory licensing scheme. I was wondering if you would think about doing that for the Greater Manchester.
1: Great.
2: Two really good good questions. So, um, I, I definitely believe there is the need for reform of the curriculum. um, 5 to 16 curriculum. Um, The reason I don't talk about it much in this context is because it's just off limits to the to the current government and it has been since the Academy reform of 2010. You know it's talk of top-down. I mean that is a very big example of top-down isn't it where schools have a relationship with Whitehall. I mean surely there must be a a local role in education. Um, and I think what you're saying is is so true. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. In this city, a capital of creativity, to have the creative subjects, the arts subjects, completely deprioritized in the English baccalaureate it just makes zero sense for us. Zero sense for those kids. But but for us to send that message at school that culture and creativity is a sort of a a lesser pastime, it's, it's devastating for those who are, that is their talent. But then you could take it into a more practical direction and say um, engineering, as you say, or ICT. Why, these are difficult subjects, why aren't that? You know, someone's made an arbitrary judgment in Whitehall about what's in and what isn't, what's a good subject and what's a bad subject. And I think it's quite an elitist judgment. And I just think it is, it's, it's a real, it causes a real, a real problem and it's not fair. I mean, who's to say that those, those are more important than, than, than those? English and maths, yes, we'd all agree about that. No one would disagree about that. You could argue science and possibly languages you know, in that core. But then to say the others are, not, are less important, I reject that, as fundamentally to say that history or geography is as important as they are, are more important than the things that I've, things that I've mentioned. So the GMAC system I described is a, is a workaround to that. It's trying to say to kids at 14, 15, look, there is something for you. And the employer might value those GCSEs even if the state is telling you it doesn't and, and value them. So it's trying to empower young people with real information. Um, but I couldn't agree with you more um, that, you know, that we need an education system from, from the start all the way through uh, that is about putting young people on a pathway towards jobs and opportunities that are real in the places where they, where they live. I think just on this, you know, Manchester will punch its weight when in all of our 10 boroughs outside this city, kids are growing up looking at the city thinking, I can work there, I will work there. And we're not, that's not where we are at the moment. My generation, I graduated here, and then I went south because I realized I couldn't do the kind of job I wanted to do. And loads of people in my generation had to do that. The kind of middle generation that we've had, so let's say from the mid 90s to the start of the pandemic, That was an era of people coming in to work here. People were brought in from other places, Media City and other, great, but that was largely what that was about. This next chapter should be about the talent of here, being able now to walk into these organizations that have come here in the last 20, 25 years. That's when this place will start to raise its game from a productivity point of view, from an aspiration point of view, but that starts in schools. And to say it can't start there is a complete madness uh, to me. So sorry, rant over, I better move on to housing, <laughs> but thanks for your question. Uh, yes is the answer to that, and it's, it's actually in our list, I, I should have said it, in our housing asks, top of our housing asks, um, is what we call a PRS, private rent sector, housing quality pathfinder, uh, to look at how we might, they're complicated those licensing powers at the moment, and I think what we're trying to do is see if we can get a simplified uh, scheme to be able to use them, um, possibly linking to some, devolution of local housing allowance, so we use the money that goes in, the public money that goes in as leverage, certainly into the places that you're describing, the temporary accommodation, and absolutely we recognise uh, what what you're saying. The Figures I've got are that um, 49% of uh, Greater Manchester's um, private rented housing stock does not, uh, at this stage, let me get this right, has an EPC rating of D and below which we think is a proxy for saying it's not decent you know how, how shocking is that how shocking is that um, so we are definitely looking at this a good landlord scheme GM good landlord scheme licensing um, we think this is a massive issue if you're about health uh, kids as you say physical and mental huge issue and by the way thank you to shelter because you did a brilliant job on the um, on the SIB that we had that really helped change our thinking about homelessness and and health. I think it is a predominantly a recovery issue, a health issue, and you were a massive part of that. Mm.
0: Okay, social impact bond. S- social I, impact bond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just be the acronym yep. uh, translator. Um, so there's a couple from the online audience. Can I yes, go to absolutely. those first, yep. um, and then we'll take a couple more from the room, and then I think we'll be at time. So these are two questions about um, Labour Party. So, well, the question as phrased here from someone called James Sheward is whether you, the mayor, believe Labour has sufficiently dealt with the narrative behind levelling up, which you could interpret in different ways. But I guess my way of putting that question is, what do you think, what, well, what, what, what do you make of the National Labour Party policy on levelling up and devolution, all these things we've been talking about? second question this is from ian watson at the bbc um more topical still what do you think about the labor leadership telling frontbenchers not to be on the rail picket lines
2: i'm, g- I'm going to leave that one a bit of uh, opportunism by uh, ian there to gate crash a uh, an institute for government event with a media media question but i, I think we'll stick to uh, what the session is about today um on the first uh, question, I think there's a big opportunity for Labour to be the party of real levelling up. I think if we're, if we're being kind, there have been some baby steps towards levelling up in the last couple of years. It's still no more than that. And if you look at some of the big investment that we were promised, um, HS2, if you look at the MEN today, the front page, or it was yesterday, you know, the the... the, the vision that the government has for Piccadilly is, they wouldn't put that forward for any station in London. Pretty much every station in London has had a major overhaul in recent times. Um, We are being told that uh, four billion pounds on Manchester Piccadilly is a a crazy amount of money and we're outrageous to even ask for it. Our five city centre stations have had barely any investment for the last 20 or more years. You know, if, if you want to level up, you have to give a city like this A German or continental style station that is layered, you know, going down where you protect the employment land around it. Instead, it's the cheap version. Put it all on stilts. Take away all the employment land. That isn't levelling up. And when you cut Northern Powerhouse rail in half and give us half a new line to Leeds, that is not levelling up. So levelling up is kind of, you know, we've been promised this stuff for for years since George Osborne first came here, Mm. promising a Northern Powerhouse and you cannot say that the promises have been been delivered on. So Labour's opportunity, I would say, is to, is to say, no, we'll do it. And then I would say, come up with, but it, it's not what Lord Kerslake calls peace shooter policies. It's gotta be substantial policies. It's got to be um, building HS2 right in Greater Manchester, building Northern powerhouse rail in full via Bradford. Um, I could go with loads of things, giving us London level bus fares. Mm. Um, giving us a public transport system that is as integrated as London. And is Labour taking that opportunity at the moment? Well, I hope so. I've certainly been pushing that, that, that case, and I'm hearing yeah, they have got a commitment to full Northern Powerhouse Rail, and they did a good job for us yesterday on the HS2 bill. Um, but I would add to it that rewiring point that I made, because I don't think you, you guarantee any of this stuff around levelling up unless you change the way the country thinks and works. So I'm going to come back to that I don't think there's any leveling up without that personally, mm-hmm. given my experience of, of the Whitehall world. Yeah. Sorry, Ian, fantastic opportunism. Barbara. <laughs> I'll leave that to a different... Uh, Absolutely fair yeah, enough. Western okay, two
0: final questions from the room then. So yeah, gentlemen there and then behind. Hi, thank you both very much for the conversation. It's very useful. Um, Sam Grogan, Provost Chancellor for Student Experience at the University of Salford. Um, Andy, I wanted to go back to the skills asked that you you, you mentioned. And what I wanted to ask really is, you mentioned about control of post-19
1: tech ed and co-control of post-16 ed. Um, with M- Minister Donilon's uh, c- conversation around the lifelong learning entitlement and the ideas there, I just wanted to ask how you how you see that configuring with your, your kind of ask for devolution in those two areas. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Okay, and finally. Hi, uh, yeah, Tomala Goodwin here, uh, Director of Policy at Clare's Center for Local Economic Strategies. Um, yeah, it was great to hear you, you kick off with the, with the kind of the sense that, you know, we need a healthy uh, population if we're gonna have a healthy economy. But I suppose you could flip it around and say, we also need to have good economic activity to kind of affect the health and wellbeing of our population. <coughs> Sorry.
2: And I was wondering, is it, what, what are some of those other interventions that you might be looking at to, I suppose, build a more inclusive economy here in GM? We've seen great
0: statistics around growth, but kind of some pretty dire statistics around poverty deprivation and inequality. Yep. Um, have you, have you got, are there other interventions in mind? Or are there other asks of central government to, to help with that? Cheers.
2: Yeah, yep. thank you. Thank you. So on the first, I think you're absolutely right to talk about uh, education and skills in the lifelong context, particularly with the, the climate uh, uh, challenge ahead of us. So we've got a, a mission as a city region to get there 12 years ahead of the UK. 2022 to 2038 a 16-year journey to a net zero uh, greater manchester but well, we we believe that's a that's the mission should be about not just greener but fairer do you, do you see what i mean that you um uh, change public transport not just to make it to decarbonize it but to make it cheaper and better for people or you retrofit homes for the same you know to lower people's energy bills so you you know you go on this journey and you do all of that and then you create quality jobs for people who are doing the retrofitting or you know, building the modern um, passive house homes or whatever else, you know, it, it creates prosperity uh, by going at this faster. Uh, but what, it is, what is implicit in it is there is a massive, massive skills challenge for older workers as well as younger workers and a retraining requirement that is colossal. Um, and this, the reform of the system needs to be cognizant of that, doesn't it? Um, and, I, and I think it needs to, that word is important to me system. Richard touched on it. I think we just need to sort of keep building this notion out. We need to start thinking of, a, of, a, of a skill, an education skills system in Greater Manchester where you know, it's not fragmented institutions anymore, but it's a kind of understood um, ecosystem where your university will lead on, let's say, well, you are leading on buildings and buildings energy and all of the stuff you're doing obviously Richard and the university leading on what, what they do, and then the FE colleges knitted in, and that is, I think, what you want to get to. And it's gotta be a lifelong, a system that is about lifelong retraining, because you know, how many mechanics will need retraining in EVs as opposed to combustion engines, all of that stuff. And it's a massive skills requirement. And I don't think we're anywhere near rising to that at the moment as a, as a country. On inclusivity, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think Claes has made this critique that you know, this idea of an extractive economy where we're just bringing in regeneration of any kind just because we needed it. I think there was a phase where Manchester had to do that, where we were at a pretty low ebb, you know, let's say in the, in the 90s. you just had to bring in people who would create jobs and investment. I think we are moving to a, a different phase where we are linking our good employment charter to all public procurement. So we are being more demanding uh, now of, of what we expect from, uh, from employers, and we think that will make a, a difference. Um, but also, we should be thinking about different forms of promoting different forms of ownership. So, under a lease uh, in our growth company, we are establishing a community wealth building hub, which I know Neil, as part of our inequalities commission, was behind recommending. Uh, we are working with third parties on a massive expansion of employee ownership, so encouraging um, companies to become employee employee owned. Uh, all of that, I think, is about building. Uh, a more inclusive economy in Greater Manchester, and where we've identified our growth locations across the city region in the late, in the plan, the spatial plan. we are talking about them as inclusive growth uh, locations. Um, and obviously then the reform of housing links into that uh, links into that as well. So no the argument's been made and it's the right argument. It's almost like that those three phases of Greater Manchester that I was describing before, you know the period up to the 80s to the mid 90s was when we just lost stuff and people left the mid 90s to the pre-pandemic periods where we kind of got ourselves going again and we were bringing in investment, Commonwealth Games, Media City. But this period now is about um, bringing that prosperity to everybody in, in GM. Uh, good lives for all and you know, that, that agenda and gr- make greener fairer. That for me is the opportunity. The drive to net zero could leave you with a more inclusive economy if it's done in the right way. On the other flip side of that, If it's done by uh, just imposing charges on people and all the rest of it, you could end up with a less equal, you could be net zero, but even less equal than you were. And I think what we're saying is there's a fork in the road here and we're definitely going down the greener, fairer, more equal route. And uh, we're trying to prove that concept that going up greener more quickly can mean fairer more quickly. And so I think we want to work with you to see if we can make that that stack up. Okay, terrific place to stop. I think so. Um, thank you,
0: everyone, for joining us online in the room. Thanks for all yep. the questions. Apologies to those I didn't have time to get to. Thanks again to our partners, Policy Manchester. Also, I should mention uh, Joseph Roundtree, JRSST Charitable Trust, who supported our, our wider research and the report we've just published. And most of all, thanks, Andy, for taking thank the that. time to speak
2: thank with you us.